and welcome to the Full Course Show Jumping Podcast. I'm Will Fletcher and as always I'm joined by Sam Gerardme. And this week we've got two special guests, USA's Jessica Springsteen and the course designer from the London Olympics, Bob Ellis, joins us. So let's get cracking. Well, delighted to have on the podcast this week a lady that's represented the United States of America on many occasions and had good form all around the world. Jessica Springsteen, (laughs) welcome to the full course. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining us this week, Jess. Really appreciate it. But we want to know you're in America at the moment and we just how are you coping with the pause on shows because of the virus? Yeah, I'm here down in Wellington. Um, everything kind of stopped about mid-March. So we've just been taking it easy, um, keeping the horses in shape, but also giving them a little bit of downtime and just, yeah, having a nice little break right now. Obviously, we've all got loads of free time. So what have you been doing to keep busy? It can be with the horses or without. <laughs> um, well, I've been, I've still been riding, which has been nice um, to fill the days a little bit. And I've been trying to work out. I've been doing a little bit of baking, um, lots of puzzles, actually, <laughs> I've gotten into and a lot of uh, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best thing that you've baked? That's what I want to know. I actually am not a very good baker or cook, um, but I made a banana bread that wasn't so bad, um, (laughs) (laughs) but mostly just cookies and nothing too crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's great. We've everyone's been trying the best to do different things. And I know my girlfriend, (laughs) she's been she's been trying her hand in a bit of baking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, But, you know, we're go back to show jumping and you know so far in your career you have had some excellent results all over the world you know on nation's cup teams for america as well as in big grand prix if you could single it down to your favorite moment that you've had so far what would that be um gosh i don't know i mean definitely winning the grand prix in saint tropez was a huge highlight for me it was so unexpected and um my owners were there and you know everyone was there and it just it was such a really special moment but that but then also I think winning the Nations Cup in Ireland in Dublin um I don't even remember how many years ago but the U.S. hadn't won it in a really long time and it was just like such an exciting team win for us definitely and you jumped double clear on that team didn't you yeah yeah I did it was it was amazing and my family was there and um it's just such an incredible show it was my first time being there and it was it was a lot of fun that's amazing. And just going back to Saint-Tropez and, you know, a five-star Grand Prix is, is so prestigious to all riders and who are starting out, they all aspire to win it. How, yeah. how did it feel to get, you know, your first five-star Grand Prix win? It was amazing. I mean, it was really um, unexpected. I remember getting on and there had actually already been a ton of clears, which is not um, so normal in these globals normally in the second round there's only a handful of clears and there were actually a lot I was like wow like this is going to be a fast jump off like this is going to be fun to watch (laughs) like I said as I was getting on I wasn't I really like wasn't expecting it um so no it was amazing I mean my horse jumped beautifully that day and like I said Frank and Monica my owners were there and it was her birthday weekend and it was just like such a celebratory moment it was a lot of fun (laughs) it was it all like lined up perfectly (laughs) The minute that you landed from that last fence and you thought, I've got a really good chance of winning here. Obviously, you went into the lead, but there are a few left to go. What went through your mind at that moment? 
Um, I was so excited. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Like I haven't had a ton of experiences with jump offs with that mare. She's not um, like naturally the quickest. So we really have to try to do tight turns. And she was just so on it and really with me that day. And um, yeah, I mean, there were so many fast riders after me. So I, I was just excited. I was like, ooh, like top, top three, top five podium finish. I don't think I'd ever been on a podium. At, no, I'd never been on the podium at a global. So I was just excited for that. And then, yeah, when we won, I couldn't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) And staying with the Global Champions Tour, quite a few of the riders that we've had on the podcast have been part of that series. But how do you think it helps show jumping globally? I think it's amazing just bringing the sport to, you know, some of the most beautiful cities all around the world. It's an amazing way to see the world. And I think it's great that different cities are able to come and see the sport and people that maybe wouldn't have seen it or experienced it otherwise are able to to have that experience so I think it's done great things for for the sport and really raised the um, standards for competitions and you know it takes you into some amazing places people say like Miami Beach and um, other ones like Paris which one would you say is you know the most the best spectacle to be at Saint-Tropez I'd have to say no I'm just kidding. <laughs> no I don't know I've I've never been to Mexico but everyone says that is just unbelievable they say the crowd there is fantastic and I'm really I'm really dying to go to that one but one of my favorites has always been Madrid I think it's so beautiful and that's also really nice for the horses as well um and I've always loved Paris like the backdrop with the Eiffel Tower I think there's just nothing like it it's hard to choose there's so many amazing locations but um I think those two would probably be my favorite Madrid and Paris mm. and Central and Central of course and London let's not forget <laughs> London and London obviously <laughs> London <laughs> <laughs> no but and you know being on a, a global tour team it does take up a lot of the calendar but you have been successful jumping for your country like you said at Dublin yet how do you try to incorporate the nation's cups into the schedule I think you just have to make kind of the best plan um, that you can with your horses and being really careful not to overuse them and just you know pick venues that suit them and make a really good program um Obviously, a lot of time plans change as the season goes mm-hmm. on. But really, I just trying to, you know, keeping your horse first and thinking about that so that they're not doing too much. Just just organization, I would guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so you say you obviously you're from America, but you've come over and you've jumped in the European circuit from quite for quite a long time. Do you what would you was your first impression of, you know, the differences between the two? So the first time I went to Europe, um, I went over with a bunch of young riders from America and we did a tour. Um, we did Hagen, Rems, and we did like a bunch of Nations Cups together, Bonheiden. And it was so much fun. Like, first of all, to be going over and competing for your country, which um, I had never done before. And to be going around to all these shows and just meeting new people and traveling together as a team. It was such an amazing experience. And that was kind of my first time being like, oh, I could really see myself doing this, you know, um, as a career because I really just enjoyed like the show jumping culture so much over in Europe. And it was it was a great experience. 
I do I do remember that actually. The the American team came over for a year and did all the Youth Nations Cup. Yeah, yeah. And so they won <laughs> every single time. <laughs> and then there, I remember there was me knocking loads of jumps down. And then there was the American I don't team believe that. just cleaning I uh, know. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> And looking more in detail at the differences between the US and Europe, how do you think the courses differ and do you have to adapt your style of riding depending on where you're jumping? Um, I don't think it's too different, I would say. I just feel like sometimes um, like you'll go to a three-star show in Europe and it will be like a proper <laughs> like 150, 155, like really strong course, whereas sometimes I feel like some shows in America, um, they can be like a little bit softer. And I just remember being, I forget what show it was, but I, I went to the one three star in Europe. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm not ready for this. Uh, it can just be like really strong courses. Um, but, but no, I don't think that there's too much, too much of a difference. And how do you split your time between the US and Europe? And where do you base yourselves when you're in both parts of the world? Um, when I'm in the U.S., I really now have only been coming here for Florida, um, the Wellington season. Before, I would base in Colts Neck, New Jersey, near my family's farm. And I would do like a, indoors um, in the Northeast there in the fall. But now I've been mainly staying over in Europe and I'm based at um, Step X Stables now. And do you prefer you know being at home jumping there or in Europe it's hard to say I mean I feel like there's so many like amazing shows all over now so you can really do both what's nice like the past couple years being a bit more like on my own I've been able to make my own schedule which has been really nice but I always enjoy coming back to America it's you know it's home for me but I've also really kind of settled into being in Belgium now and and I enjoy it a lot there and then let's go back to the early days of Jess Springsteen. How did it all begin with the riding? How did you get involved with horses? My mom had always wanted to ride. So when we moved to New Jersey, we live on a farm there. She started taking lessons and I immediately wanted to start as well. And um, it kind of just started as a hobby, but I was always really wanting to like determined to have my lessons after school. I didn't want to miss it. I was really like serious about it as a young at a young age and um we just actually ended up being right across the road from one of the top junior training barns in the country beacon hill show stables like i could literally walk to their barn it was kind of just fate it worked out like that and i started training there and then i got into the hunters and equitation and started to do it competitively and so what sort of age did you know you start getting to do it really competitively my gosh, I honestly don't remember, but I was doing like the Pony Hunters. I must have been eight, probably. Um, and, and I started coming down and competing in Wellington maybe when I was about 10 years old. I would just come for the weekends. And then when I was in high school, I started staying down here. So I would leave school for three months. Um, I don't know how old you are. At that I guess I was 13. 12 or 13 <laughs> so I was taking it pretty seriously I guess from like a younger age yeah and you also went to Duke University where you graduated and 
I just wanted to know, did you always want to be a professional show jumper or were you considering other career paths? I knew I loved show jumping and I knew it would always be a big part of my life, but I did want to see if there was anything else I was interested in. And also all through high school, I was so focused on riding. I really like every weekend was riding every day after school. I kind of didn't do anything else. So I wanted to have that sort of college experience and just see if there was anything else I, you know, was drawn to. Um, but there was nothing that <laughs> I loved as much as show jumping. So, <laughs> but I'm really glad that I went. Definitely. And, you know, going from there, was there a moment in which you thought, you know, right, I am good enough to do this professionally and this is what I want to do? Um, my gosh, I'm trying to think back. Well, I think actually, I guess... During my last year of college, um, I think it was the same year as the World Equestrian Games, and I had been to Cat, and I was flying down on the weekends, and he was jumping amazing, and we ended up making the shortlist for the for the WEG that year. And I think at that point, I was like, okay, like I kind of felt like I could um, make a career out of it. That was kind of the first time I had success at a senior level. And then your parents as well. Have they always been supportive of you going down the international show jumping route as a career? Yeah, definitely. Um, They've always been really supportive. And of course, you know, there's times, especially when you're in school and it's a lot to balance. And I wasn't sure, you know, if I should be doing it. And they always really, um, really supported me and kind of gave me a push when I needed it. And yeah, I was really lucky for that. And yeah, how does your dad... Uh, enjoy you know going to shows across the world obviously he did world tours and everything like that when he was singing all over the place but how how you know how does he like to go to the shows and watch you jump and they love it I mean they've been coming to the shows since I was you know seven or eight on ponies and you know sitting there all day in the rain waiting for my classes like they've been dedicated (laughs) since day one so I think now it's really nice because they get to come to these amazing cities and um and watch and and they really love it and they try to kind of work their schedule um around it so you know when they are on tour they can stop in a city that I'm in and things like that which makes it a lot of fun but no they've always enjoyed it what I've always wanted to know is has Bruce Springsteen ever given show jumping a go (laughs) no (laughs) not that I know (laughs) of I mean, we ride at home, but we actually, um, we have like mostly Western horses at home. So they do, um, like they go, my parents, they go on trail rides and things like that all the time. Um, But I don't think he's ever jumped. (laughs) So you wouldn't lend him volley for the weekend then or something like that? (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) But, But you, obviously your parents being who they are, do you ever feel the pressure when you go into the ring or is it something, you know, you've always grown up with and it doesn't matter to you at yeah, all? Yeah, no, it's just something I've always grown up with. Um, and it, I just, yeah, it's something I never really thought about. But that's what I love about show jumping is when you're in the ring and, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. You're so focused on what you're doing. You're not really thinking about about anything else, which is really nice. That's it's true so much isn't it because you go through as soon as you go through those start beams there's nothing else that even 
goes on your mind I don't think and yeah all the pressure and all the nerves and anything like that just completely goes out the window and you're just completely focused on exactly what you can do exactly and I think that's something that my parents were really surprised about and I think a lot of people who don't know the sport they're like wait you're only in there for you know 70 seconds and if you knock one jump down it's just completely over and it's true it's so short and you really just have to be completely zoned in on that um every millisecond of the way and how uh, this is a question i interested in you know, so obviously we know show jumping is extremely technical which to a lot of people who've never done it like your parents you say that haven't do they do they find it interesting you know what we're training at home and how much you have to think and how much time and effort goes into like you say those 70 seconds yeah no absolutely I think that's another thing people don't realize is how much training and practicing you're doing kind of leading up to to the moment um but my mom has always been like really interested in that and like the tiny things that you work on to get you know ready for a certain course or a certain show and um yeah they they're definitely they've always been interested in it so when you were younger, you know, you say you started at a young age. Were there any riders that you looked up to? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just growing up, like watching BZ and Laura at a young age. And I remember being at shows when I was younger thinking like, oh, my gosh, like I'm never going to get to that level. Like it just seems so far away um, when you're little. So it's amazing now to be like competing with them and to be have been on Nations Cups with them. It's, it's really special. Do you ever look back and think, wow, I'm actually jumping on a team with these people that you've always looked up to? Yeah, no, it really is crazy. Especially like I, Laura trained me for a lot of my younger years and I learned so much from her and yeah, to be on Nations Cups with her, it's, it's pretty wild. It just, it always seems so far away when you're young, but you know, slowly working away and it becomes a reality. (laughs) And let's take a look at the less sort of serious side and this is a question that I love asking our guests is what embarrassing moments have you had in the ring that you've looked back at and laughed at oh my gosh actually (laughs) so when I was in college I would I wouldn't ride so much because I went to school in North Carolina and it was about like an hour and a half flight from Wellington and some weekends I wouldn't come I would be busy at school or things like that Um, but I had a great horse at the time who I actually did like the Young Rider Nations Cups on and he had moved up to about the five-star level. He was amazing. And I was coming down and I think it was like a three-star Grand Prix or something under the lights Saturday night. And I was walking the course (laughs) with Laura and there was this big um, oxer by the end gate. And I was like, oh my gosh, he is going to jump me loose over this oxer. I just know it. She's like, oh, stop. Like, no, you're fine. So I go in the ring, I'm canning around, I'm going clear, I come to this oxer, he makes like an incredible jump, and I just fly off the side, like no chance, like completely lost my balance, and oh my gosh, it was so embarrassing, but I also just had to like laugh at myself. Um, and then and then I got on tight the magnetic stirrups, which are amazing, and I seriously swear by them, and I've never had that problem since, knock on wood. <laughs> It's, it is awful when that happens. I remember my first big Grand Prix. I was on. I got picked for a Nations Cup in uh, in Morocco, and we went down first Grand Prix. We jumped. It was 
really, really big. And I'd, I'd never jumped a course as big as that. So I was jumping around and my little horse, he's only 15 too. And going around is jumping amazing. It's the biggest he's ever jumped. And we get to the fifth or sixth fence and he jumped a <laughs> massive jump and I landed, lost the stirrup. And I have a huge, huge head. <laughs> but so it's really tight on the side, but long at the front and my hat goes straight over my eyes. And I'm, can, I have to jump around the 160 Grand Prix, my first ever 160 Grand Prix. I have one stirrup and I'm literally leaning back so that I can see under the peak of my hat to go in around this oh, huge course. No. And we only, we, yeah, we had, we had the third fence down and we managed, and the poor, poor little guy had me bumbling around all over the place because I oh nearly my jumped gosh, me out of the saddle over awful. the fence. Then you're like yeah. the whole course trying to like get back organized. And it's yeah. Like... yeah. Oh, it's awful. And it, and it wasn't a big old, a big ring. Where right, you, you know, right. you could take a little bit of a wider turn just to get it. Everything kept oh on coming at me as my hat was flopping all over the place. <laughs> Brilliant. I like that story. <laughs> We've all been there. No, but... Yeah, I know. There's so many times you, things like that happen, but as long as you know you, you get back the next day and you're fine. And in, in matter of fact, actually ended up with a relatively decent placing <laughs> in that Grand Prix so, <laughs> with just one down. But it's just so yeah. embarrassing, you know. You're there with you know some really good riders there, looking like who is this guy? Oh <laughs> what is he doing? So um, <laughs> when you get a bit of free time in between shows, is there anything in particular that you like to do? Yeah, um, normally um, we're competing almost every weekend. So we're kind of just going home, unpacking, repacking and schooling the horses for the next show. And there's not so much downtime. Um, But no, now we have a lot of free time. So I'm trying to think of some hobbies that I can (laughs) pick up if you have any recommendations. Um, Yeah, I've been learning Italian slowly, but that's pretty much it right now we'll I ask our listeners need, to come up with hobby. some hobbies for you jess and we'll, we'll, we'll let you know what they say <laughs> yes <laughs> but moving on Thank from you. there is there anything that the average person wouldn't know about you um oh my gosh i don't know hmm, i'm gonna have to think about that one I wish I had like a really cool hidden talent. We'll ask the next question and come back to that one. You can have another minute to think. (laughs) Um, But who in your career has been your biggest influence? Uh, Definitely, I would say my parents. They've just kind of been my biggest supporters since I was young. And they've just always like really inspired me to go after what I love and what I'm passionate about. Well, there so. was your extra minute to Definitely think. So. <laughs> Back to the question. What oh, would the average person know about you? What wouldn't the average person know about me? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> but I like to puzzle we go. now got something. in this That's quarantine brilliant. time. <laughs> <laughs> We should really put, we learn so much about everyone on these podcasts. We really should ask that a little bit yeah. earlier. Because. Wait, really? Do people have we've had like a couple of, that, we've had a couple of good things. Fr- uh, James Wilson, he, uh, he's jumped on a lot of teams for the past year. He was a gymnast when he was younger. Um, oh, wait. Oh, okay. I, I, that's helpful. I used to we'll take jazz lessons. 
<laughs> I I, really. I could have been a jazz dancer. I also dabbled in gymnastics as well. Um, I sprained my ankle doing a handspring off the <laughs> balance beam. <laughs> I think you got. I think you got a bit further than James <laughs> did anyway. A gymnastic in his tutu. <laughs> How um? <laughs> can you sing? <laughs> no. Um. No, I cannot sing. So just just dancing. <laughs> Sorry. Just jazz, <laughs> a little bit of genetics. That's great. Uh, no, it's been fantastic. Thank you, you know, so much for joining us today and making the time. We really appreciate it. Uh, we've had a lot of fun talking to you, but we just like to finish always with knowing what's your favourite piece of advice to tell someone. My favourite piece of advice, I guess, just to. I mean, as cheesy as it sounds, you just really have to believe in believe in yourself whenever you're working hard at something and you have goals you want to achieve. Oftentimes you have to believe you can do it before you sort of have the proof that you can. Um, and to just be confident in what you're doing. I think that's like how I think that's some great advice. Thank you so, so much Jess, <laughs> for, uh, for joining us. Thank you very much to Jess Springsteen for coming onto the podcast. We love talking to her and hearing, you know, coming through the ranks, getting to the top of the sport. And now for part two with the course designer from the London 2012 Olympic Games. Let's hear from Bob Ellis. We're delighted to have join us in part two of the podcast, a man whose career has spanned over 40 years. He was the Olympic course designer at the London 2012 Olympic Games. Bob Ellis, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And Bob, I have to say, when I said to my parents and my brother, as we were sat over dinner, just saying that you could come on to the podcast, I was inundated with questions that they wanted me to ask you. So you might be here for a bit longer than you want because they were so excited to hear what you had to say. <laughs> it wasn't about football as well, was it? <laughs> but you can brag to my dad about that at the moment. Yeah, so. I do often every time I see him. <laughs> oh, dear. Um Okay, so we're going to a bit of show jumping and, you know, you've had an amazing career. Like we say, being in the the course builder at the Olympics and you've done so many things, but you had decided to take a step back. How hard of a decision was that for you? Um, It was very hard, really, because uh, it's been a way of life for, for so long. Um, and, you know, you, you used to seeing all your, your, your pals, riders or course builders, you know, every week. Um, and to take a step back from it, it was difficult, although I had decided that um, I was going to do um, five shows, um, which was three Hicksteads, um, Royal Windsor and Olympia. Uh, mainly because they wouldn't let me retire. <laughs> so you mentioned there some of the shows that you're still doing, but how long has your career spanned in total? I actually started building in uh, 1973, um, but I was com- uh, I was combining that with riding. I didn't stop riding until uh, 1994. Um, so... Uh, after 1994, it was sort of became a full-time occupation. And for you with the riding, did you think that was very much a key part of the course designing to be able to ride as well? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Because 
um, you knew what distances were supposed to be or, you know, through walking so many courses. Um, and it, it's a great help. It really is. Angles, you know, you, you know what, what horses can jump and what they can't. Um, so uh, I think if you haven't ridden, uh, it takes a lot more to learn it all than it did for, say, me. And over the years, you've built some fantastic courses all around the world. Are there any in particular that stand out? Hmm. I suppose, really, the um, the Nations Cup course at the 2009 European Championships um, and probably all the courses at the Olympics, really. Mm. Um, they're the ones I mean, that stand out. I mean, there's so many, but those two in or those few in particular um you know to do a european championships and olympic games was beyond my wildest dreams really no it was amazing and like you said the olympics which were fantastic courses but i'd love to know you know how much time did you spend on designing those courses before they were put into place oh designing the courses or the whole lot Designing the courses, probably. just just the courses, because we'll go on to the the rest of it in a bit. Okay, the courses probably about uh, about two months, but I was forever changing them, certain parts of them, um, you know, because I was going through them in my mind virtually every second uh, that I was awake. Um, so uh, <laughs> yeah, about two months really. And when you've got such a big task like that, where did you start? How did you, what was your first process with the course design? Um, well, to sit down and design the courses, but, you know, you, you've always got at the back of your mind. Uh, you, it was the same with the Europeans, really. At the end of your, at the end of the day, you've got, with the greatest respect, lesser nations as well there, mm. as well as the top nations. So it was a matter of um, designing something that wasn't going to um, put paid to the, the sort of the, the lesser nations, um, but to test the, the top nations. And then moving on from there, obviously, we mentioned the Olympics a minute ago and you were the course designer there. But you did also, I believe, play quite an integral role in designing of the fences that were used in London 2012. Yes, we did. Uh, we we designed all the courses, uh, all the all the fences. Sorry, um, myself and my uh, my fantastic team of Kelvin Bywater, Bernardo Costa Cabral, and Alan Wade. Um, they all had an input, but I would say probably that Kelvin did the most of it because he was the arty one amongst us. <laughs> I mean, you did really manage to capture some of the best scenes from Britain within those fences. But how did you manage to think of the ideas? Well, we did uh, we did Hickstead Royal International, and then we followed that the week after by Dublin, and we left our caravans at Hickstead. We came back from there, and then every day for about the next I don't know eight, nine, ten days, we travelled to London by train, and we went round every single. Well, we took pictures of every building. We went in museums. We went everywhere uh, and took pictures and pictures and pictures of things that we thought could make a fence. That's incredible. I, I didn't know that at all. And 
the you know, the amount of time you put in to make those courses, I think we all have to say thank you because it did really, really help for the atmosphere and made the show jumping in at the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, for us it was remarkable, but I think that um, you've got to remember with these all these pictures we took, most of the things of historical value in London, apart from in the museums itself, were the buildings. And the trouble with doing fences out, buildings, making buildings fences, they're very, very easy to jump. <laughs> yeah, you can't <laughs> just have a course of walls. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was lucky. We, the, one of the, the one which I stands out to me the most is the, the white horse fence, yeah. which I'm actually looking at right now because we live in the, in the Vale of the White Horse. And okay. uh, which, the, which one for you was your favourite? Wow, I suppose Nelson's Column, really. Yeah. Um, and I could tell you a remarkable story afterwards with that because um, the the white the horses were, uh, the the lions on the side of Nelson's column went to British Show Jumping's new offices. Yeah. But the column itself um, went to the Royal Naval Museum. They asked if they could have it. Really, that's amazing. Yeah. And the the photograph of it, although we did we did watercolor drawings. About two or three weeks afterwards, they were doing a, an exhibition of Nelson's artifacts in the Royal Naval Museum, and they asked me if they could have the watercolor drawing of um, that fence to put <laughs> in the reception of the um, of the exhibition. That was amazing. Yeah, uh, but you know, talking about the art of course building, I'd love to know how hard is it to keep thinking of new ideas. <laughs> Good question. I mean, you always start. We always start off with a blank piece of paper and and, and the plan of the arena. Um, it comes and goes, you know. It sometimes you can stare at a blank piece of paper for days, and your mind is a blank. Um, other days you can think of courses one after another, but I suppose really they're they're only the basics because you you go to the show and then you change them. A little bit when you've seen what the uh, the ground conditions are and the fences and what the entries are, um, so uh, I think it's very difficult to keep coming up with them all the time. And then of the courses that you've built, are there any that sort of you remember the most that had tricky lines within them? Uh, no, not really. Um, different days, different showgrounds different courses you know they all produce lines that have appeared to be difficult so never any particular lines that you'd you'd, re you'd repeat and in terms of fences what type of fences do you believe fall the most i think the most difficult fences for the horses to jump are, are fences with a solid color um you know fences with uh, contrasting colors seem a lot easier for the horses to judge um but um you know like solid greens solid reds blues uh yellows they're all very very difficult to jump definitely i can tell that post box fences caught me out on more more than one occasion it's a beauty isn't it oh, i hate that fence <laughs> <laughs> but what i always talk, talk, talk to 
to Zoe because uh, she had that down twice in the uh, in the in the Olympics in the in the oh. event. In <laughs> oh, it's, it's a horrible one. But there's a thing I you know I, when we walk a course as riders, you you know you walk it and you think you know the lines, and sometimes they just c- come out and they they ride a little bit differently than how you walk it. Is as a course builder, does that ever happen to you that you set a line out and it ends up people doing something different to what you thought they would? The number of times I've sat by the side of the ring and, and you find yourself saying, I never expected that line to ride like that. <laughs> <laughs> or doubles riding a lot shorter or a lot longer than what they actually do, did or should have done. Um, yeah, all of the time, really, you know, um, you very often find, you know, well, this should be so many down, so four strides, five strides down there, an easy four, and then it rides up about, it rides about a meter or two meters longer than what it should have done. No, that's, that makes me feel a bit better than not just walking them all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, as a rider, when we are walking your courses, I, I think the beauty of your courses is that you walk them, and you never, I don't ever feel like you go, oh, my horse would be really struggling but you always seem to manage to keep the clears low without you know for a lack of a better phrase like killing the class and making too many horses have loads of fences down how do you manage to do that um look <laughs> um, no, that's I very modest think you go with instinct and your gut feelings when you when you you walk you've you've got the design you've you've built the course you walk around it again some fences look enormous and they they don't measure enormous but you think mm. you know that's got to go down or something else maybe is um is well up to maximum height but looks ridiculously small so you still you... put it up another hole you know and you do everything well i do everything by gut feeling mm. but you do you know, you see, you managed to keep them low, and the amount of times I've jumped your courses and come out and gone, oh, that jumped really nice, but oh, I did have a fence down. It's, it is, I think it is remarkable how you seem to, you know, keep it like that, and you don't, I don't ever feel that you seem to, you know, have one trick and everyone have one, that one line down during a course. They always fall evenly throughout the courses. My motto is, if you can't be good, you need to be lucky. <laughs> 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 obviously we've touched on briefly London and many of the other highlights of your career but are there any decisions that you've made in course building which you've later regretted oh yeah definitely the, the one that stood out for me for for years and years and years I don't know probably I can't remember how long ago but um, Wellington um, Palm Beach um, when it was on grass and the first time I ever went there um, Bernardo Costa Cabral came with me um, as my assistant um, and we you probably know yourself that there's a, a sort of mini Grand Prix on the Thursday the, the what they call the WEF class WEF Grand Prix and we had 90 odd starters and I think it had something like about 35 clear rounds um, and uh, the, the main Grand Prix is on the Saturday night and uh, and the organisers were starting to pressure me and say, you can't have that number of clear rounds. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to play with distances. And, oh, oh, they were hassling me and hassling me and hassling me. So I gave them exactly what they wanted. 
And I always remember Skelly walking the course and saying, you're not going to get that many clear rounds again. And I think, <laughs> well, we had two. Oh, and it was awful. And I just oh, remember to saying, after we jumped three horses, I said to Bernardo, never, ever let me build anything that I don't want to build myself. <laughs> yeah. So we came to the jump off and uh, with the two clears, the first one went and I got eliminated. Oh, oh no. And you're thinking, <laughs> oh, crikey. Okay, the second one went clear, which was, fortunately was Kent Farrington. And he went clear and won the class. And then uh, I did quite a funny story actually attached to it. Um, because we were running late, there were no lights in those days. Um, they asked me if I they asked me earlier if I'd take another class out of another ring, which happened to be a meter open. So I said, yes. Yeah. So we started after the Grand Prix building this meter open. And this girl came over to me and said, you've got to come to the press conference. Come to the press conference. And I said, no, no, I can't. I didn't want to go to a press conference. I said, I've got to go open. And they, I always remember they took me kicking and screaming to a press conference, which I really didn't want to go to. Oh, that's brilliant. Obviously, you've been involved in the sport for many years now. And I think it's safe to say that it's changed dramatically with the focus going away from the big, bold fences to the more careful and technical courses today. Why do you think that change has come about? I think we got to a stage where the tracks were getting so big and so wide um, with the great big bulky fences and deep cups. Um, the fences didn't fall very easily, so they got building bigger and bigger. And I think you were just stretching horses and stretching horses. And there had to be a change, really. Um, and so it evolved that we ended up with lighter poles, shallower cups and probably more airy and, and uh, more technical courses. Is there any, you know, how did you adapt between the two eras? Did it happen like o overnight or was it a very, very gradual change? Two things, really. One, I think um, probably the Seoul Olympics, which Olaf Peterson did, was probably the start of it. Um, but you learn to change with the times. And, and I've been very fortunate to have done an awful lot of uh, course designing abroad. And you see how things are changing in other countries and you bring the ideas back with you yourself and, and put them into practice. Um, so it, it took time to change, but it did change. I mean, you wouldn't remember, but your mum and dad would. I mean, some of the fences we used to jump at county shows. I mean, the, the poles were like a two-man lift. <laughs> <laughs> I could do with them back now. <laughs> It's all relative <laughs> to what you're riding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there's, that's brilliant. And there's some. this is a question that my dad was desperate for me to ask. And he he said, so back in the day, should I say, when he was jumping, they, although the fences, like you say, were much bigger and a lot bolder, there was usually one or two from the better course builders that were lighter and a bit more technical that, you know, kept the, you know, the big bruisy horses from jumping clear. Do you think you could switch that round to these days, say like a, a water jump does, that disrupts the people's rhythm and by making a, a bolder fence to then go down a tricky line? Would, do you think there, there might be a way of incorporating that or is, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> uh, 
I, I think um, because your dad's drummed it into me over the over the years that we still need to have a few um, or a couple of um, stronger fences in the course. Um, but um, I think you can you can break the rhythm, not just with a water jump, although that does it, but you can do it with distances, you know, short and lengthen, short and lengthen, you know, those sort of things where a lot more. You keep saying tricky, but they're not tricky. They're problematic. Um, <laughs> they're problems, <laughs> not tricks. You know, um, so you can do it that way very, very easily. So, like you said, going from the, you know, the, from the bigger fences, there have been places that have been able to keep that tradition up, like Calgary. And one that always sticks out is Hick, the Hickster Derby, which obviously has not changed course since it began. And there's a question that I've always wanted to know, and I think you'd be the best person to answer it, is obviously the Hicks Derby still has great prize money, and I'd be certainly be very happy to get that money. But from for the best riders these days, it's not quite out of the ordinary. What do you think would happen with all the best riders and best horses from all over the world if the Derby was up to the three million prize fund like it is in the Calgary Grand Prix? Uh, well, it'd be great to see the Derby with that sort of money. Uh, I think in this country, it's really difficult to attract sponsors that are willing to put that sort of money in. Of um, course, of course. I was meaning just hypothetically. I don't, I, I, like, do you think that the, you know, the best riders would jump their best horses in it? Or do you think they'd still take it? Because it's such a different class, especially from these days. Do you think it wouldn't quite be the same. I think you would get better horses in it. Well, I don't know. Yes, you would get better horses in it. Or perhaps you would attract more top riders in it if the money yeah. was, was, was better. I don't think they would be probably jumping their really, really top horses, their top Grand Prix horses in it, because they're not very keen on jumping banks and holes in the ground. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I mean, as far as the prize money goes, it would be great for the owners and riders um, to have that sort of prize money. And maybe the course designers could have a percentage of it. <laughs> I saw you'd be back again if that was the case. <laughs> Just staying with that prize money thing, actually, whilst we're on the topic... Do you think as a course builder, you'd build differently depending on the prize fund? If it's still a five-star Grand Prix and say you've got one with three million total prize fund versus one with, let's say, 500,000, is there much of a difference in terms of technicality or would you see it as it's still a five-star Grand Prix? No, probably not. But you'd look at your entry list anyway um, of what you've got in it, the horses you've got in it, the riders you've got in it. Um, you know, you've also got to think of sponsors, media, television you know whether it be three million or 500 grand obviously there's a lot more pressure if it was three million um you know because uh, everybody would want their pound of flesh then um but yeah. i don't think so really um i mean for us we always we always start to get a bit panicking when it is big prize money um you know because the riders are a lot more tetchy um you know and and Parents get a bit more tetchy, as I well know from your point of view. <laughs> you know, when there's yeah. a bit of money at it, or something a bit more important, um, yeah. that everybody's giving you advice of what should be the course or what have you. Um, 
And the same happens if it was like three million quid to the win. You'd have Ludger Beerbaum give him the benefit of his advice and, and you know, everybody like that. Mm. And definitely Nick would have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Has there been many riders who, I don't want you to name and shame, but are there many <laughs> top riders that come to you and complain about a course more than most would? Yeah, there's the one or two, yes, that you always find or moan. And <coughs> excuse me. Um, on the whole, of the 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 older riders, um, I was riding, or they were. I was riding the same time as they were, if you know what I mean. So we were all good mates before we started. So I've been very lucky in having a, a very good rapport with the riders, and certainly again with the younger ones now coming through, people like yourself and your brother. Um, we, we have a laugh and a joke and, you know, you have a good rapport with them. And I think as long as you're around to answer any questions in the ring when uh, when they're walking the course or whatever. Um, I mean, the number of times I've been said uh, to uh, be, been told, you know, I got some spare bridges and boots in the in the in the in the wagon. Would you want to get on and ride it yourself? If you think you can ride this course. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And looking at other course builders that you've worked with in your career, who would you say are the best ones that you've worked with, in your opinion? To me, the best ever was John Doney. Uh, and I think it's yes. so sad that John has sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago um, with this dreaded virus. Uh, John was my mentor. Um, he really taught me. He's taught me all I know. I, I couldn't have done... The things I've done without him, uh, he supported me and pushed me and he was also my best mate. I think another one probably is Olaf Peterson, who along with John probably started this more modern way of designing courses. Uh, and now I think probably the, the ones that I rate, I know they're people that I've worked with are Kelvin. Kelvin Bywater, Alan Wade, Bernardo Costa Cabral, Guillermo George from Brazil. Um, all super, super course builders. That's that's a great. And I think your tribute to John was, was fantastic. And just, you know, he was your mentor. But how did you get into course building? Um, I, uh, I worked for, or I started riding for Steve Hadley. Uh, who at that time was one of Britain's top riders. Uh, and at Hilton Park, he built um, a, an indoor school. And then in his wisdom, he decided to run shows, run a few shows. Uh, so uh, somebody had to build the courses. And it was either <laughs> him or me. And guess who won? <laughs> and I, got into and... I, I got interested in it. And we had started having some bigger shows. And... Uh, uh, Alan Ball came and built some of the big qualifiers that we had. Um, and uh, and then I used to assist him. And then out of the blue, he said, uh, would Steve let you come to the Horse of the Year show? And I said, I don't know, I'll ask him. So I asked him and Steve says, yeah, carry on. If you've got nothing qualified yourself this year, by all means go. So I did and I got into it. And then as I was offered shows, when I'd finished of an evening, done the horses up, I'd go and sort of help John um, if he was the course designer. I'd go and help him rebuild of a night. And we became real good pals. 
Um, and that's how it all started, really. Obviously, Bob, for you, over the years, you've watched so many rounds of show jumping. What would be your favourite horses that you've seen? Oh, dear me. Uh, so many great horses, really. I mean, on 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 the British circuit, you know, we had pe- pe- horses by Penwood Forge Mill, uh, Philco, Melia Monarch, Milton. Uh, I suppose, uh, if I don't say Buttervant Boy or something like that, that'd be a good <laughs> Genesis, perhaps even. (laughs) Um, You know, Milton Japaloo, what a fantastic horse. Um, I suppose Big Ben. And then, recent, more recently, some to me the best horse I've probably ever seen now is is apart from Milton, maybe um, Milton and Big Star are the two best I've seen really. Yeah, Big Star. To the, he's the best I think I've seen. I, he's just phenomenal. And has Nick ever forgiven you for that that vertical off the corner? Well, I told him it was the way he rode it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's. Uh, I, I think you're really right. There's some amazing horses in that list. But um, uh, as well as the horses, obviously, there's the riders. Is, do you have any favourites? Um. Well, one of my best mates is Nick Nick Skelton because. We've known each other for the best part of, uh, I suppose, now getting on for 55 years when he was riding ponies when he was 13 or whatever. Um, and I've always classed him as, as one of the, the top, um, I suppose, Neko, Nelson Pessoa, um, Alvin and Paul Schockamola, Davy Broom, Eddie Macken. Um, and then more recently, Nick and John and Michael, and probably um, whichever way you look at it, you know, over the years, good and of, of long ago and recently, Marcus um, Eining. Yeah, that he's phenomenal, he is. isn't he? So so smooth. He is. And yeah, this I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Bob. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And just finally, is there any you know favourite tricks that you like to keep up your sleeve when you get to building a course? No tricks, only problems. <laughs> is there any of your favourite problem lines to put up? No, not really. You know, but what you got to remember with all this, whatever problems that you put in, they've got to be solvable. And it's got to be sol- solvable by the rider. You don't want the horse to suffer. It has to be the rider. Not suffer, but, you know, to sort the problems out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Full Course Show Jumping Podcast. Don't forget to follow our social media channels. And we've also got a competition still running for just for a couple more days. So get entered. We'll, the competition closes on Friday and we'll announce the winner on Saturday.